hey, have you ever won a battle and then end up losing that same battle at a later date? Uh, January 2021 was a particular low point for my personal health. Uh, I've got this black suit, this black wedding suit uh, that I got a few years ago and uh, wear it to most of my weddings that I officiate. And so I put it on January 2021. And uh, it's like one of those moments where you get it buttoned, but you're like, I don't know if it's going to stay buttoned. And it's, it might break, you know, if I eat, you know, at all or whatever. And I'm just like, man. And then it was so tight on my thighs that I didn't have any feeling on my feet by the end of that mid-ceremony, you know. And I'm thinking, like, I don't even know what to do. And, uh, and I was so deathly afraid that I was going to rip the pants. Genuinely, from the bottom of my soul, just like, there's no way these things stay intact for the rest of the night. And let's just admit, as a bride, it's not your dream desire for your pastor to rip his pants on the dance floor, okay? Would it be a fun, crazy moment? Of course. Would it be cringy? Absolutely. And so I was just like, man, like the McDonald's had all gone straight to my thighs. Like for some reason, that's where it goes, stomach waste, whatever, you know? And so, um, and so I was like, man, this is not good. None of my clothes were fitting. My energy was low. And I'm like, something has to change. So I decided I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to be a little more active intentionally. And so over the course of a few months, I uh, ended up losing 30 pounds. It was amazing. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, this is great. And uh, guess what? My suit fit. And I'm like, this is awesome. So then I just, I mean, my dancing skills at weddings, receptions went way up. It was a blast. It was just an amazing experience. And uh, I mean, I felt uh, better, more energy. All that stuff was great. Um, and I sustained that for a while. And then I eventually slowly started compromising. And then rather than ordering a salad, I got a burger and fries. And rather than ordering, uh, or rather than drinking water, I drank soda. And rather than walking, I slept in. And I slowly gained all 30 pounds back, okay? They all came back straight to my thighs, okay? And it was just not a good scenario. So then I put my wedding suit on. And this is like literally just a couple months ago. I put my wedding suit on. Guess what? It's barely connecting, right, at the button. It's barely zipping. It's the, 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 the thighs are so, t- I'm like, this is not a good scenario. And, um, and so I literally went and bought a different suit. And let's just be honest, like you, <laughs> you know you've really just accepted the reality of your health when you go buy bigger clothes, okay? So I was just like, I, and it had stretch to it. It was amazing. It's one of my favorite suits, okay? Um, but I was like, man, this is not good. And not just, let me just be clear. When you're talking about health, I'm not just talking about weight loss or, or superficial, I look better or whatever. You're talking about a real spiritual problem. Like if I'm not disciplined with my health, I'm communicating that to my whole church family that like you should actually care about the body Jesus has given you. Like that's, so it's not just how do I look? How do I feel? How do my clothes fit? Like there's a real spiritual aspect to this. And it's just like, do I have energy to play with my kids and roll on the ground with them? Do I have, um, uh, am I being healthy and setting my life up long-term for my wife and I to enjoy uh, each other into the 80, my 80s and 90s and whatever? I mean, it's, I wasn't. So I'm like, something needs to change again. Uh, January 2021 happened gained it all back. Again, so in the last month and a half, uh, ended up losing 20 more pounds. So I feel good, feel healthy, and I'm like, this is amazing. The suit fits again, and I'm just going to stick with the new stretchy suit, because even if I just, I'm not going to have that, idea, that, that reality, but I had to re- start and re-win the battle I had already won, but eventually lost. So this is a picture of temptation, of what we're talking about today in temptation. Listen, temptation is a battle that if you stop fighting, you start losing. And even if you fight, 
you could also still lose. I mean, it's just this bizarre kind of reality. And so I know we want temptation to be like a black belt in karate. Once you achieve it, once you win it, once you get it, you get to keep it, right? But I think temptation is a lot more like those wrestling title belts, you know, that like you get it, but then you got to keep fighting or you're going to lose it. Someone else is going to take it. Like it's this idea that you can't just bank on old victory and temptation. It's a consistent fight and battle um, that you can't let up on. You can't, you can't, just because you won and you fought doesn't mean you get to stop fighting. And I just know for sure, every single one of us are experiencing temptation in some uh, level on a daily basis. And so this is, this is for every single person in the room, whether you're killing it or whether it's killing you, this is uh, verses for you that James has. And I love, what I love about these verses we're going to study this morning is this isn't like a helpful tips and tricks to help, you know, do a quick win over temptation. It's real gospel insight that I'm really convinced will produce long-lasting gospel transformation in our battle uh, in temptation. So that's where we're going to go. So let's look, if you got your Bibles, James 1 is where we're going to go, and uh, we'll be in these uh, few verses this morning. So let's read the verses 13 through 15 uh, to get this first little section. James starts, James 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when, it's fully, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So first thing I want us to see is, is the idea of the tempering temptation. We can't avoid it. It's going to be there. But how do we temp- temper it? How do we uh, fight it? How do we uh, engage that? And so um, the first thing that'd be helpful to do is define what temptation is, right? So just make sure we're all on the same page of what we're talking about in this key idea of temptation. So I want to use two uh, verses that have been significant to me that speak to this. Number one is Hebrews 4, verse 15. And number two is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. So I'll point out four things that between these two that they show. Number one, uh, temptation is inevitable. So the first thing to know about temptation is that it's inevitable. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, okay? So uh, Jesus, God in a bod, uh, the Messiah, Savior, Jesus, God who created everything, he comes on to our scene, comes down from heaven, wrapped in skin and bone, right? Fully God, fully man, and he's tempted, Okay? So where did you and I get the idea that at whatever age you are, we could avoid temptation, that we could get spiritual enough that temptation isn't very pervasive in our lives? There's no way. The Son of God was tempted, and so will you be. Uh, Temptation is inevitable, Hebrews 4.15. Number two, second thing to notice about temptation is that temptation isn't sin. Temptation isn't sin. So Hebrews 4, verse 15, says that Jesus was tempted in every way, but then it says, yet without sin. So draw this distinction, you can be tempted yet without sin. Jesus was. So temptation and sin are two different things. All of sin starts with temptation, but not all of temptation ends with sin. You get what I'm saying? So um, you can be tempted and still not sin. Those are the two things that Hebrews 4, 15 shows us. The two other things to point out from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that number three, temptation is universal. Temptation is universal. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 starts and says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. No, nothing has ever tempted you that's, that's, that's new or different to the rest of the world. So uh, whatever you're tempted about, you're not alone. Like, and you need to hear me. You are special, you are unique, but your temptation is not. It's very 
standard and generic and we're all and we're all facing that so i need you to hear me say this believe it or not whatever you are tempted in no matter how dark the temptation is other people in this room have been tempted by it i promise you Temptation will make you feel isolated. Don't believe it. It's universal. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. Number four, temptation is beatable. Temptation is beatable. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 continues, says God's faithful. And it says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So listen, you will never experience, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will never experience a temptation that you cannot beat. Take that in. So this verse squashes all the excuses we make. Oh, I can't. No, no, no. He'll never let you be tempted beyond your ability. Um, And so it's beatable. Last thing I'll say that isn't necessarily attached to one of these verses is that experiencing temptation is a really good thing. It's a really good thing. I think it's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in you. I was shocked uh, at 19 years old coming uh, to walk with Jesus. I was shocked at how much temptation I had that first year. I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? Why am I so messed up? And it was because for the first 18 years of my life, I had done whatever I wanted to do. If I felt like saying something, I said it. If I felt like doing something, I did it. If I felt like looking at something, I looked at it. And for the first time in my life at 19, I was confronted with my sinful will and his holy will, my broken will and his beautiful will, and they were clashing, and I wanted to be uh, like Jesus. I wanted to be more like him and honor him as his adopted son, and, and that was what's happening. So if you're experiencing temptation, if you're pushing against that wind, if you're fighting uphill, it's a good sign to mean you're not just going with the flow. You're not just going with, you're going against the grain, and you're fighting sin, so it's a really good thing. So four things. Temptation is inevitable. Temptation isn't sin, temptation is universal, and temptation is beatable. So just to get an idea, temptation is basically our inability to control what messed up desires we have, what messed up thoughts come to mind. It's the cracks in our mind that come through, and we're thinking, why did I think that? Why did I, why did I give that as an option? That's temptation. So, uh, but what I think is unique in these few verses, this first part that James is explaining is that really there are two temptations within temptation that he draws out. There are two things that we're tempted to do when we're tempted, okay? And the first one is play the blame game. Verse 13, play the blame game. Look at it, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So we try to blame a lot of other people in our temptation and the first person we try to blame is God. So verse three, if you look back at it, and Tom preached this last week, did a killer job. Verse two says, count it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials, when you meet trials of various kinds. And verse three says, for you know that it's for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or faithfulness. So the idea is that God in his sovereignty uses trials in our lives to test us, or as a test, to mature us, to prove what he knows is true in us, to uh, produce in us what we couldn't have without them. So when James switches topics from trials to temptations, he wants to be clear, God may test you, but he will never tempt you. So don't apply the same idea with trials and, and, and testing to temptation and tempting, right? That idea doesn't fit. And it's easy to think in the midst of trials that God is testing you, right? It's easy to think like, this is hard. You're sovereign. You're in control. Why are you doing this? What are you doing? And uh, trials just bring up a lot of temptation in our lives, like no doubt about it. It's like a breeding ground for temptation. Your life is hard, and so you're tempted to numb. 
yourself by overconsuming or overspending. Your life is out of control. You don't have any control. So you're tempted to grasp onto whatever control you have and, and feel like you've got some sense of, of control in there. Your, your, your uh, tragedy strikes and you wanna feel better. And so you're tempted to look to people or possessions or power or whatever to make you feel better and get that relief. And it can be tempting within temptation to assume that God is the one tempting us. But James says, he, he can't. He literally can't. His perfect holiness and gloriness don't, or gloriousness don't mix with temptation and sin. Um, God will never put you in a position to be tempted uh, beyond your ability. He isn't baiting you in to moments of failure and seeing what you'll do. Uh, he wants an abundant life for you. He loves holiness in you. And James says, you can't blame God. In fact, in verse 13, when he says, let no one say, it's actually really strong language that basically would be better translated to say, don't you dare say that God's tempting you. He, he would never, never do that. So just to know when we're tempted, God, you, you put this in my life and of course I'm tempted by it. You, no, he, he would never put you in a situation you could be tempted uh, beyond your ability and, and would fail. He doesn't do that. Uh, number two, if we don't blame God, we love to try and blame others, okay? I see this happen all the time. See, one of my core struggles is contentment. Talk about a decent amount, um, but it's this idea of a settled happiness in my heart for what God has given me. I don't want more. I don't want different. I just want to enjoy what he's given me. That's a real deep struggle in my soul. And so I've got some friends that Jesus has really blessed financially. And, uh, and I'll go over to their houses. I'll see their really nice house and I'm I'm like, wow, or, or, or we'll drive their car and I'm thinking, this is amazing. Or we'll, we're, they'll show me their grill and I'm like, I could grill such better meat if I had this thing or whatever, their TVs or their gadgets or whatever. And I'll leave after hanging out with them and, I, and, I'll, and I'll think about, I'll download Zillow, I'll open up Facebook Marketplace, I'll go on you know, Amazon, I'll look up the website that they got the thing at and I'm like, it's their fault. They're the ones who introduced me to this bougie lifestyle. I didn't, you know, I didn't try. They, it's so hard. I want that, you know? And it's like this crazy thing, but I really in my heart have blamed other people to go, I was fine before I went over their house. And now, now I want that, you know? And it's like, and, and, and it happens, but I can kind of go, I was, I was good. And then they came into my life and this, this thing, I, I've seen on a really serious note, I've seen husbands blame porn addictions on their wives because their wives aren't being intimate enough with them. And while I'm all for open communication and I'm all for a vibrant sex life, husbands, don't you dare blame your wife for a decision you're going to make um, and what you're tempted about. You have a decision to go to that website or to go to God and find the fulfillment in him. I've heard wives genuinely blame their husbands for their inappropriate relationships or affair. He wasn't pursuing me. And, we, we, you know, and he, was, he was hunting and he was golfing and he was working, whatever. And it's like, I'm all for your husband laying his life down. I want to have a tough conversation with him. But at the same time, wives, you cannot blame your husband's lack of pursuit for you to go pursue another man. I, I, parents blame their kids all the time. I try, I try to be patient. They push me to my limit. It's their fault that I blew up and I'm struggling with anger. No, 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 you, you're the parent. I've seen people blame their neighbors and their friends and their coworkers for their gossip. I, never, I didn't start the conversation, but they started and started talking about her, and so I joined in too doesn't doesn't work that way either it just it happens all the time we blame culture for the way we treat people oh it's normal to say that that derogatory oh, we blame our president we blame our church we blame every uh, so many other people for our temptations and struggles and lastly if we're not blaming god and we're not blaming others we love to blame satan 
This is personally the biggest one for me that I feel like I, I blame. And to caveat this and nuance it, Satan is the tempter. He is the father of lies, John 8 says. He drools over our sin. He feeds off of it. He loves to kill and destroy. He wants to distract us and depress all of us. And in my temptation, I can blame Satan by overexalting his power and emphasis in my life. He's just too strong. I mean, he, he's just too persistent. He's just too crafty. I'm tempted because he's such a good tempter, right? It's his fault that I did that. I thought that or I said that. But look again at verse 13, 14. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted. So here's the blame. Here's who, here's who to know why your temptation's happening. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. What I think is odd in this verse is he doesn't say he's tempted by Satan. That's how I would naturally go. Because that's the tempter, right? No, 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 no. He doesn't say you're tempted by God. He cleared that up in verse 13. He also doesn't say why well, you're tempted by others. He says by, when you're tempted by your own desire, meaning you're the one to blame, right? James doesn't let us blame Satan either. So you can't blame your temptation on God. You can't blame your temptation on others. You can't blame your temptation on Satan. The only one responsible for your temptation is you and your own evil desire. Now, Genesis 3 perfectly displays this. It's bizarre to me how clear these realities intertwine into them. And so uh, in Genesis 3, to recap it, God puts Adam and Eve, uh, his first human creations into the Garden of Eden as a gift. He walks with them. He talks with them. Gives them responsibility, authority, mission, the whole thing. Gives them each other to enjoy. It's beautiful. Gives them every fruit. It's amazing. But he has one restrictive rule. You can do, you can do all this stuff, but there's one thing you can't do. Don't eat from that tree. Okay, sounds good. The other thousands, totally. That one, don't do it. Um, eventually, a serpent comes on the scene. We know that to be Satan. And he asks Eve, hey, did God really say that? Did God really tell you that you can't eat? And Eve explains God's rule. She says, hey, no, he can't do this. She adds a little bit to it. But anyways, Satan goes, uh, the serpent goes, no, that's not true. You can eat of this and you won't die. And so verse six in Genesis three is really crucial in this whole narrative. It says that Eve saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes and would make you wise. And she ate it, okay? And after she ate it, she offers it to Adam. And Adam's like, Sure, okay, and he eats it, right? Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with God is now tainted and shattered, and so they hide their nakedness from each other and their sin from God. But God comes on the scene and goes, hey, I'm seeking you out. He goes to Adam and says, Adam, what's going on, man? Guess what our boy Adam does? What we love to do, right? Verse 12 in Genesis 3, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave me, he broke two of our rules. He played the blame game on two different levels. He says, number one, God, if you never would have given me this wife, I, I would have been good. I, I, liked the, I liked the oranges I was eating. I didn't, I didn't want anything else, you know? And she brought this, whole, this other thing and this whole deal. I ate it because she ate it. I ate it because she ate it. God, you must have given me the wrong wife because if, I, if you would have given me a better wife or a different wife, um, I wouldn't have done this. So it's kind of on you. The woman you gave me. But then second, he says, blames it on her. And he goes, if Eve had more willpower, if she could fight that deception better and wouldn't be tricked, I wouldn't have eaten it, right? So it's kind of her fault. And, and so he does both. He blames God, blames her. And then guess what Eve says? God goes to Eve, hey, what's, what's going on? Verse 13, the serpent deceived me. The serpent, the serpent deceived me. So she blames Satan. She doesn't blame God or Adam. She blames the serpent. He's the reason I fell. I was tempted by him because he's so crafty that I fell. But remember verse six, 
She was the one who saw all those benefits to it. It was good for the food, it was delight to the eyes. It, was, um, it would make you wise, and she chose to eat it. So she could have said no to the serpent. She's the one responsible for her sin, just like Adam is the one responsible for his sin and his choice. So our first temptation within our temptation is to play the blame game, is to blame God, others, or the serpent. But uh, it's on us. We're tempted by our own desires, which leads to the second temptation within our temptation, and it's to bite the bait. The second temptation isn't just to play the blame game, but the second one is to bite the bait. So look at verse 14 one more time. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Notice those two key words, lured and enticed. It's actually fishing language. So uh, I've been fishing twice in my life. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in California and then just kind of a city kid. I don't know. But anyways, um, so like when we go to Kristen's parents' cabin uh, and they go fishing, she's the one who puts the worm on the kid's hook, okay? So that's just, that's just the way our marriage is. And it makes sense if you know Kristen and I well. But uh, anyway, so that's what happens. And, but I've been fishing twice. Uh, and they're kind of bizarre experiences. But number one, uh, we went fishing off the Channel Islands in California for giant squid. Okay, so every 10 to 20 years, giant squid show up and we're like, yeah, let's go. So before we go out to get this giant squid, we stop in the bait shop. And there's these like big, huge cylinders that are colorful. And then there's literally 40 or 50 hooks all around it. It just looked like a nightmare. I mean, it was just so crazy. And they're like, yeah, this is what you're going to use to catch the squid. Wow, okay, sounds great. So we get him, we go on the boat. Uh, I threw up, obviously, very, very seasick. I didn't know that until then because I hadn't been fishing before. But anyways, uh, me would have been helpful. And so we go out, we catch these squid. It was bizarre. I mean, it's just, they were huge. They were squirting ink everywhere, but those lures worked great for them, right? That's awesome, okay, awesome. Then about a year later, we went to Mexico and uh, in Ensenada and we chartered a boat out, and we're going to catch yellow, yellowtail tuna, like these big yellowtail tuna. And I'm thinking, hey, do I need to grab my old, uh, my like big old cylinder with all the hooks and stuff. Oh, no, 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 that won't work. Really? What do we use for this? We use live bait for tuna. Okay, great. Well, what, what kind of live bait? Well, it actually depends. The guide went, well, you know, in the fall, we use this kind of fish because that's what they're really biting on. And then in the spring, we use this kind of fish because that's really what they're feeding on. Oh, that sounds great. So we use these things. We caught tuna. It was amazing, right? It was this great experience. I also puked on that one too, even with Dramamine. So not a great experience, hence why it was only twice. But, but here's the point. The idea here is that temptation is like a personalized lure in your life. It's, it's, it's baiting you in. And, and James says that you're lured by your own desire. So you need to see the personal reality of this. Like, so the question becomes, well, what's the bait that works for you? Like, what's, 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 the, what's the thing that really tempts you? And, it, and it's, it probably changes in different seasons. I read a book with about a dozen uh, men in our church, uh, and it was about, or one of the sections was about um, idols in our lives. And the four kind of primary idols were pleasure, comfort, power, and wisdom. And one of the guys in his 60s was like, I've experienced that each one of those idols primarily in different seasons of my life. So he said, in my 20s, I wanted pleasure. In my 30s, I wanted power. In my 40s, I wanted wisdom. And in my 50s, I wanted comfort. And I thought it was interesting. He said, it's not to say that I don't still idolize power at times when I'm in my 60s, but the bait in my life has changed as my circumstances have changed. And so it's like, whatever bait maybe used to work for you and used to, used to be back, 
maybe that's that you just pass right by that. And maybe the bait that you used to just pass right by and it wasn't intriguing, now it feels like you're magnetized to it, right? But to understand what draws you in. And so here's what James says. No matter what the bait is, there's always a hidden hook. No matter what the bait is, no matter what the lure is, there's always a hidden hook. So look at verse 15. He continues, he goes, then desire which is synonymous with temptation. And this word desire is another word for craving or lust. So when temptation, desire, lust, craving, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So this is a really graphic imagery and language. He explains that the, the progression of temptation into sin, how temptation, which isn't sin, turns into sin. And he says, desire, thought, temptation, if you don't fight it, uh, if we give into it, we bite the bait, that is the moment of when it is conceived gives birth to sin. So desire, thought, temptation wasn't sin. You gave in, it became sin. And he says, lastly, the consequence. So you go from you know uh, desire, and the next point is disobedience, when you actually give in, and the last point is death. And he says, the last space is sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the language here that he's using, the imagery, is of a stillborn baby. Again, super graphic, sad, unfortunate reality, but that's what he's saying sin and temptation is like. Sin has all these promises and it can't deliver. Sin uh, and temptation has all this anticipation. I just want you to know, sometimes we, and again, sin is, is, is messed up and all that, right? But all of us, when we sin, we're believing in hope that it's gonna do something good for us. All of us, when we sin, have anticipation and, and these bright eyes of like, this is gonna be great. And then we go in and it's like this imagery of being pregnant and being, oh, this is gonna be awesome. And then when it's fully grown, when sin has its consequence and effect, it, it, it ends in death. And all that anticipation ends to this tragic moment of sadness. And he's saying, this is illuminating what sin is. It, it won't deliver on its promises. It's, it's broken, it's faulty, it's fleeting. It just won't do it. There's always a hidden hook. And here's what's odd about Christians and temptation. See, if temptation is like a bait and hook, we have been baited into a lot of sin in our lives, right? And so we bite the bait, we get hooked. We get damaged, we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, we instantly regret it. But oddly enough, within the gospel, by his infinite grace, Jesus rescues us. And he graciously grabs us, and he takes the hook out, and he throws us back into the water to swim into our freedom that he bought for us on the cross, right? It's beautiful. But there's research done that depending on what it is, if it's a lake or the ocean or whatever, that the average fish in a lake, once it's caught and if it's released, will be caught again in two days, Likely will be caught in two days. And you're going, you, sometimes you'll catch a fish and you'll see another hook in its mouth or a scar tissue. And you're like, did you not learn your lesson? And it feels like that's the reality that we do. And we kind of go like, well, I mean, I bit the bait. I gave in and, and the hook hurt, but Jesus rescued me and now it's okay. And he forgives me, he loves me. So, you know, we bite the bait again. It's like, what are we doing? We've got all this scar tissue from all the, all the hidden hooks. And it's like, can't we learn and go that? The bait looks great, but I know there's a hit hook hidden somewhere in that, and I'm not going to bite on it. Like, that's the call that James is saying. You're lured and you're enticed. Don't bite it. So these are the temptations within the temptation to play the blame game, shifting the blame off of ourselves onto God or others or, or Satan rather than ourselves. I, it's their fault. I'm the victim here. 
or to bite the bait and forget that there's actually a hidden hook in there. So what do we do with all that, right? Like, what's, what's the response to that? What, how do we actually fight temptation? I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, to give, give the clarity on temptation in the beginning. He says, God's faithful. No temptation is overtaking you except what's common to man. And he says, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, this is key, he will provide a way of escape. He'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I'm convinced that James 1, 16 through 18, these next verses explain the way of escape that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is talking about. So uh, let's look at these verses and, and figure out what this way of escape is. 16 through 18, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So from tempering temptation now to turning in temptation. Uh, so verse 16 is, is really the overarching call in this. He says, don't be deceived. Don't, 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 be, don't be deceived. Explaining that at the core of our temptation is deception. Those two things are, are, are linked together. You're tempted, you're being deceived. You're, you're believing lies. You're forgetting truth. You're thinking that there isn't a hook in that bait, that, hoping that that thing can give you what only God can. And so verse 17 expands this, and he says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Comes from above. Now, I think it's odd that he doesn't just say the sentence, every good and perfect gift comes from God, right? Now, he, he is saying that because he continues to go from the Father of lights, and that's God, right? But he says particular, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Why? Because when we're tempted, we're not looking above, we're looking below. We're looking horizontally. We've got our blinders on, and when we're tempted, we're not thinking about Jesus. We're not thinking about eternity. We're thinking about the moment. We're thinking about this singular moment that we're in and what would satisfy, what would give us hope. But we're not looking long-term. We're not looking eternally. We're looking into this moment. So he's saying, hey, in the midst of temptation, every good and perfect gift, it comes from above. It comes from there. Lift your eyes up. The first thing you need to do in temptation is look up. Take your eyes off of this moment and these passions and whatever and look up and look to Jesus. And notice what's coming down from above. He says every good and perfect gift, which means exclusively every good and perfect gift that you could ever have only comes from God. And in temptation, when we're looking down, we're thinking, but that looks like a good gift. And that looks like a perfect reality. And so we grab it and saying, look up. Only good and perfect gifts come from him. He's the one that can actually give you what you're wanting, right? This is what James is explaining in it. We've got to look up. Uh, every good and perfect gift comes from him. Um, and so I have to say this. Um, we, every week, uh, we do sermon prep with our whole collective staff um, and uh, girls and guys, and we look at the sermon about a week and a half out into the next one. We go, hey, what's, what's insights we have? What are we drawing from this? And we we're talking about temptation, and Lexi Fields, who's on staff with our soul care uh, ministry, she pointed out the fact that like, sometimes we play whack-a-mole with temptation. And I think we could walk away from this sermon and go, oh, temptation, you know, I don't want to do it. And just boom, like comes up. I think that, boom, and then just be done with it. And she was like, actually, it's really good. And our soul care ministry is amazing, by the way. But she was like, to actually process 
what's going on in your heart in that temptation. And I think this is so under talked about, but so it's not only look up to go for the father of lights and every good and perfect gift comes from him, but also in some ways look inward to go, what's going on in my heart? Why am I tempted by that? Why, why is that so alluring to me right now? Why am I hungering for that in this moment? Why, why, what's going on? And it's so helpful to look at that and go, what, what am I really wanting? What, what am I really hoping that this gives me? But if we just feel temptation, boom, I'm done. No, that's bad. Sometimes we don't actually take time to go, what am I really tempted about? And so here, here's the reality is that if you take time to process whatever you're tempted by, it gives you a reality to really dig in and go, oh, that's what I'm wanting. And, and I can actually logically in my brain go, that doesn't give me that. And Jesus does. And that's where you can actually personally preach the gospel to yourself because of you know I want this, it can't give me that, only Jesus can. So for instance, one of my major temptations is to escape. Like I consistently have to face the temptation of escaping from responsibility, from pressure, from whatever. And so I'm really prone to scroll on social media for hours. I'm really prone to watch Netflix for hours. I'm really prone to escape through buying stuff or whatever. And I have to pause in those moments when I'm really tempted to escape to adventure or whatever and go, what am I trying to escape from? And what am I hoping that this does for me? And really at the core of my escape, I think is wanting relief, wanting comfort in the pain and the pressure and the responsibility. And I'm going, I know that Instagram can't do that for me. Can it temporarily do it? Yes, and it does a great job of it. Can Netflix let me escape out of whatever's going on? Of course, but then I'm right back on it the next morning. You know, I'm right back into the pressure. But the only one I can actually find refuge in is Jesus. The only one who actually can bear this burden. And 1 Peter 5, 8 goes, cast your ears on him because he cares about you. And Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, come to me if you're tired and weary. And I'm going, don't go to Netflix or TikTok. Or go, go to him. And I'm going, whoa. And in that moment, if I stop, look inward to look upward and go, okay, Jesus, I I want refuge in this moment. I want relief in this moment. That's not gonna give me it. You can't, I'm asking you for that. Does that make sense? So to understand and slow down on the temptation, not just play whack-a-mole with it, but to actually draw in and realize and ask Jesus for what you're really wanting in that moment. So look up, look inward. Last thing is to look to the cross. Look to the cross. In verse 17, James ends with, uh, with, or or is is finishing with, a definition of God or a description of God. He says, it's coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So he's saying, in other words, even if you give in to this temptation, it won't change God's mind about you. You may be tempted to abandon God, but he will never be attempted to abandon you. And verse 18 reiterates this. He says, um, of his own will, those, circle those words, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what he's saying here is that of his own will, his choosing, his volition, his passion, he's the one that sought you out. He's the one that ran after you when you were running away from him. Of his own will, he says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So check this out. Put your finger on verse 18. Put your finger on verse 16. Those two things are juxtaposing each other. Verse 16, the end result of sin, when it's fully growth, brings forth death. Get those three words together. Verse 18, God, what's he do by his own will, brings us forth by the word of his truth. He's juxtaposing those. Sin and all of that, it brings death. 
God in his divine, extravagant, beautiful, scandalous grace brings us forth into life. He's saying that didn't deliver on its promise, but I did. Then I sought you when you were running in deep into sin. This is the gospel. And so I just have to ask, do you think God's feelings about you are fragile? Do you think that his affection can be altered, that his love can be lost, that his mind can be changed about you, that his patience can be pushed to the limit? Maybe you're fighting temptation really well right now, and you're like, I'm doing it, and it's great, and I haven't done this in that long, but you're afraid. Something in you is subtly afraid that if you stop fighting, God will be disappointed in you. Or maybe you just have stopped fighting, and you're totally apathetic to sin. You're falling in, you're doing whatever, and and you're just wondering, has God changed his mind? Is he just done with me? Because functionally I'm done with him and I want you to see the good news of the gospel in James 1 17 through 18 look to the cross God's feelings about you aren't fragile (laughs) they're fixed they're firm they're founded in the life death and resurrection of Jesus you can't change God's mind about you and so if you're if you've been worried uh Uh, if you've been wondering what God thinks about you, if you've been worried that what you did last week changed his mind, if you're tired from trying to impress him and never let him down, look to the cross. Look to the unchanging reality of who God is and know that there's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. you're, You're loved by God. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change his mind about you. And I've just got to end by pointing to Jesus. Our, our Savior. In Matthew 4, Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. After 40 days of being alone, after 40 days of being hungry, Satan pulls out all of his punches, and our Savior Jesus resists perfectly. He remains spotless. So that, here's the good news, our hope is, that, is not that we'll perfectly avoid temptation, is not that we won't ever play the blame game or that we'll ever, we won't ever bite the bait or that we'll always look up or we'll always look inward or we'll look to the cross, but our hope is that even in the moments when we give in to temptation, our perfect Savior stands as our representative that he never gave in to it. And that so by his perfection and our faith in that perfect resistance of temptation, that Jesus has accomplished, we then are saved fully, completely, forever, and that God is never tempted to give up on us because Jesus was fought temptation perfectly. There's this beautiful reality that that is our hope, standing in our place, having perfectly fought temptation in one. That's the gospel.